I'm Will Chamberlain. I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Ben Weingarten. And I'm Josh Hammer. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So today we got we have a SCOTUS special. Um, obviously, there's just been a number of historic Supreme Court rulings this week. And that, I mean, obviously, the most important of which was Dobbs overturning Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. But there's plenty else to talk about Second Amendment free exercise cases. So um, today we have uh, from the various contributors. Uh, first, Josh is going to talk about the historic week at SCOTUS. Um, Ben is going to specifically focus on uh, the Second Amendment cases and the right to bear arms. I'm going to be talking about a couple of free exercise of religion establishment clause cases. And finally, Emily is going to look at what life looks like after um, Roe versus Wade. So to kick that one off, I think, again, we start with Josh. Okay, so I guess the first thing to say at the top of the show is just, just wow. Um, really just wow. I, I think a lot of us who have kind of come of age in the conservative movement, a lot of us who have kind of come of age in the conservative legal movement, perhaps in particular, we caught the white whale. I mean, like we did it. I mean, like really since the beginning of the modern conservative legal project 40 years ago, the Federal Society was founded in 1982. This has been the goal. Literally, this has been the goal since before any of the four of us were born. The overturning of Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey has been by orders of magnitude the preeminence goal. So just what an incredible week. We're going to dive into the Dobbs case, but I just want to set the table here. I mean, I, I think for a lot of us, and I count myself among them who have kind of just been kind of perennial pessimists about like all things judiciary, judicial branch related, this has been an interesting week and it's just been an eye-opening week. And a lot of us, I think, who, who for years argued that the judiciary is just a one-way ratchet and that the way to kind of dispose of, of the judicial branches to kind of oppose judicial supremacy and to just kind of quash these rulings. It, it, it's going to be a summer of a lot of contemplation about, about a, how a lot of things have been said and how a lot of arguments have been made, to be honest with you. But we obviously, we're going to get into all this, the Dobbs abortion ruling, of course, there was a massive, massive Second Amendment case. Ben will talk about that. And any other term, by the way, this Second Amendment case would have been the marquee case. This is a case called Bruin out of New York State. It's a magisterial 60 plus page majority opinion from Justice Clarence Thomas, likely his career-defining majority opinion to date. We will see what happens next term in the affirmative action case. But to date, this is the first time that the Supreme Court has actually said that bear arms, not just keep arms, but bear arms means what it said. We had two amazing religious liberty victories in a case called Carson versus Macon out of Maine. And then a case called Kennedy versus Burlington School District. This is the so-called Coach Kennedy case out of Washington State, the former of which uh, the case Carson out of Maine basically said that you uh, that a state cannot discriminate against religious schools with its public tax dollars. Will, we'll talk about that. And then the Coach Kennedy case, of course, is kind of this really interesting kind of mix of free exercise clause and establishment clause where the court actually finally indicated that uh, Lemon versus Kurtzman, a 1971 case, uh, the so-called Lemon test for religious endorsement, has finally apparently been overruled. It has now gotten the, the proverbial red flag treatment on, on Westlaw for, for lawyers. So it is now a, a formally bad law, which is just been, that in and of itself, it's fine. It, lemon, overturning Lemon is like the third most important thing that's happened over the past week. And, I, and like I'm telling you as a former religious liberty litigator, that has been a, a goal for decades. So just a monumental week. But in my, in my remaining time here, I do want to focus on the Dobbs case because it really just is just a just a remarkable, remarkable achievement. It really kind of feels surreal, to be honest with you, to be living here in America 
in, in, in a government that is not ruled by the judicial and moral tyranny that was Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So uh, it, it, it's a massive opinion, including all the dissents and the appendices, well over 200 pages, would encourage the listeners and viewers to go ahead and, and read it for yourself. From my perspective, one of the big takeaway items is the fact that the court did not cave. They did not cave after this unprecedented leak that happened in Politico in early May after this. We had been in uncharted waters since then, truly. I mean, I mean, they have thrown the entire book, these mostly peaceful protests culminating. I say that in jest, obviously, they're not mostly peaceful. They've been firebombing pro-life crisis pregnancy centers. It was culminating in a literal assassination attempt. Uh, thank, thank God aborted at the last second, but against Justice Brett Kavanaugh. So we had been in uncharted waters now for the past month and a half, and they really did it. Those five justices from that from that leaked opinion with Justice Alito, they, they stiffened their spine and they really did it. So praise be, I think, first and foremost to all of them. Praise be, of course, to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who I think a lot of us on the right, you know, if Rachel were here, I would be curious for her thoughts. She's obviously been a leading critic of Mitch McConnell's over the years. But I think even Rachel would admit that Mitch McConnell certainly deserves some credit now for what he did during the Trump administration, going all the way back to the Merrick Garland holds in the 2016 election. Praise, obviously, to former President Donald Trump, who, I mean, talk about promises made, promises kept. Go back to the 2016 election. There's clips of him in the debate saying, I will nominate pro-life justices who were overturned Roe versus Wade. And my God, he really did it here. So just a truly, truly historic opinion. We're going to come back to the Dobbs discussion at the end. I'm, I'm sure I'll have more to say on it as well. But for the sake of time here, I do want to just throw it open to all three of you guys. Just a truly, truly historic week, but no bigger story, obviously, than the Dobbs case. Yeah, I guess I'll go ahead. Uh, so I, I mean, I think this is really the result of finally having a durable Supreme Court majority. Uh, you know, this is the, remember that Amy Coney Barrett was, you know, essentially confirmed in late 2020. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's the last, I think, change in the Supreme Court. And I mean, I guess, it, because, you know, she wouldn't have been involved in a lot of those in a lot of the hearing of the, the 2020 term cases, we weren't really kind of fully seeing what, what it would mean to have this full durable majority. And now we do. Um, because you, you look, especially at Dobbs, we'll get more to the more of this later, but Justice Roberts's opinion was terrible, right? It was, and it was a silly, it was, it was more silly, right? I respect the Democrats opinion more because it actually had a clear and consistent position, which is Roe is precedent, stare decisis, you know, that makes sense. Roberts said we should be more incrementalist and respect stare decisis, but would have put in place an entirely new standard to evaluate abortion law. Like that would have required a whole new set of cases to litigate. I mean, he wanted to create this reasonable opportunity to get an abortion standard for, you know, what, uh, what will be lawful. And, but in, in a previous, you know, version of the court, that would have been a, a controlling opinion, right? That would have been what was the conservatives would have had to sign on to that to get a majority. But now we have, we have the Clarence Thomas court. This is Clarence Thomas is effectively the chief justice and Roberts is, you know, Roberts is whatever BS incrementalism is not relevant, right? The, there's five solid conservatives in the court that can just ignore him if they want, which is exactly what happened in Dobbs. Um, and so, I think, you know, to, to Josh's point, like we're really finally at the point where there is actually conservative control of the Supreme Court, right? That, and, that, and that a conservative philosophy dominates, regardless whether it's originalist or not, it's certainly conservative. And um, I think that, you know, we'll get into more of this, but that, that implicates how strongly we view the need to, to change how, how much influence the court has over our lives. Maybe if, if a conservative court is a useful thing. I know 
Yeah, I, I would just add to that point. This entire term, I think, underscores how much legislative punting has gone has gone on um, over the last you know couple of decades, and how the court has taken center stage alongside with the administrative state, um, in, in really ruling the day to day lives of so many of us. And uh, obviously, that's not to criticize the road decision and, or the, the Dobbs decision at all. It's more to criticize the road decision <laughs> um, originally um, at just how consequential. Um, these decisions were and how truly I think difficult it has become to bind this country together. Um, obviously, I say become not to mitigate the fact that it was extremely difficult to bind this country together in the past. But I think uh, some of these these cultural uh, gulfs um, are, as we sort them out, you know, through the courts and on the national stage becoming uh, increasingly difficult. And that's a big takeaway. Um, but we yeah, I think the conservative legal movement saw that coming um, to, to Josh's point. And looking back on the last several decades, it took a long time to set up a court that would be this 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 consequential um, and uh, this this sort of necessary. Um, and it happened. So with that, I'll, I'll toss to Ben. So I've remained skeptical of the Supreme Court, but you have to say that they're in many respects, I mean, this is an unalloyed series of exceptional opinions rendered here. Uh, Roberts bequound himself, I think, in that opinion. And I was happy to see that if you look at the edits between the draft Dobbs opinion and what the actual ruling was, uh, you see that Alito took him to task for it, rightfully so. Um, I, I truly hope that Will is right, that this is the Thomas court. I think certainly directionally it is. When you look at uh, attempts to rein in the and, and challenge, and pr this will probably continue this term and subsequently, uh, the administrative state, obviously, as I'll get to in a minute in terms of the right to bear arms, Justice Thomas, in his opinion, which I think was also concurring opinion in the Dobbs case, uh, went on to challenge substantive due process itself. Stare decisis is being challenged, the concept itself. These are all epical massive game changes in our jurisprudence back to what our jurisprudence should be in my view. Uh, and for that, I think, and Josh wrote uh, very eloquently about this uh, in the past week, Tom Thomas is a revolutionary figure on this court. He is, he is laying down the gauntlet now in a whole series of cases that paves the way for potentially, again, in other areas as well, we've talked about with big tech and common carrier and the like in a whole slew of areas, changing the game and returning power where it ought to be uh, to the people. And that, you know, two brief points on that. One is all the people who talk about defending our democracy, which of course does not mean our democracy, it means their power, have not a, not a word to say positive about democracy here that abortion will go back to the states and the people where it should have been and always ought to have been, never in the constitution. And then also the last point I'll make briefly, and maybe we can return to it later is just, the chasm on display here is quite interesting between our elite, our ruling class, and where the court ended up coming down on a whole slew of issues. They are operating in two wholly distinct worlds, I'm proud to say, because I was not sure that the court would hold up in several different instances and that the court would remain insulated in large part, the conservatives on the court, from public opinion and all the pressure that would, they were being subjected to, leaving aside the chief justice. So I think all those are to the good uh, and let's hope we actually get back to legislating in this country would be the last point that I would make. Um, with that, I guess I'll transition to my own segment and we'll talk about this Bruin case, which as Josh has defined it, 
you know, might be uh, the magnum opus for for Justice Thomas, perhaps his most magisterial opinion. And really, you know, he lays it out at the end of the opinion. What the ruling is, the ruling is that New York's proper cause requirement for obtaining an unrestricted license to carry a concealed firearm violates the 14th Amendment in that it prevents law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. That is, you have a right to keep and bear arms, and it's not just in your home, but it's out in the world as well. And Thomas himself talks about how laughable the notion is that you only get to bear arms in your home when people aren't generally bearing arms, wearing their firearms within their house. But even setting that aside, I just want to read a couple passages from it, and then we can talk about sort of the broader takeaways, what the ramifications are going to be in the real world for this ruling. But this opinion masterfully lays out Justice Thomas's interpretation of what the Constitution says, the plain text of the Constitution, plus then looking to historical precedent, which are the historical basis for it, and natural rights, by the way, which, as Thomas notes, is what we apply to every other amendment of the Constitution. But for some reason, the Second Amendment gets treated differently. So he writes in part, when the Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's conduct, the Constitution presumptively protects that conduct. To justify its regulation, the government may not simply posit that the regulation promotes an important interest. Rather, the government must demonstrate that the regulation is consistent with this nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. Only if a firearm regulation is consistent with this nation's historical tradition may court conclude that the individual's conduct falls outside the Second Amendment's quote-unquote unqualified demand. And he goes on to talk about the fact that there was this two-step approach applied to gun regulation in the, in the past and referencing the Heller opinion, which this sort of builds on Scalia's majority opinion in Heller. Step one of the predominant framework is broadly consistent with Heller, which demands a test rooted in the Second Amendment's text as informed by history. Heller and McDonald do not support applying means and scrutiny in the Second Amendment context. Instead, the government must affirmatively prove its firearms regulation is part of the historical tradition that delimits the outer bounds to the right to keep and bear arms. And then Thomas goes through the whole slew of history around the Second Amendment, and he concludes as follows. Apart from a few late 19th century outlier jurisdictions, American governments simply have not broadly prohibited the public carry of commonly used firearms for personal defense, nor subject to a few late in time outliers have American governments required law abiding responsible citizens to demonstrate a special need for self protection distinguishable from that of the general community in order to carry arms in public. So obviously this ruling is going to have massive implications for the minority of states that follow a similar sort of Second Amendment regime to New York. Uh, it's worth noting also that just as Justice Alito uh, rebutted Justice Roberts in that Dobbs opinion, Justice Alito in, this, in his uh, concurring opinion here takes to task the left and challenges it on a whole slew of arguments it makes around you know, raising recent mass shootings as some sort of justification for their infringements on the Second Amendment. Um, so once again, you know, this builds on Heller, which itself and McDonald as well were both critical decisions in terms of the right to keep and bear arms, the natural right to self-defense, the core of the Second Amendment, not going out and hunting deer. Uh, and this is a, just a massive opinion by Justice Thomas. Uh, it's good for, for law-abiding citizens. Hopefully it will make criminals think twice. And by the way, this is, this is def, def, desperately needed in America, given the massive rise in violent crime and the response by authorities up to and including the DOJ, which shamefully in this case, and as well in the Dobbs opinion, went out and I think in an unprecedented fashion, don't quote me on that, but potentially in an unprecedented fashion, 
came out and basically said, we disagree with this decision. Uh, we respect the court, but we disagree. That in and of itself is a very disturbing development in response, just as the violence in the streets and the rage is a disturbing response to Dobbs. But this is par for the course from the left. Thank God the court held strong in this instance. And with that, I'm open. Josh, I know you've, you've written about this. Feel free to jump in and talk about what you think the, the ultimate implications are, but open anyone else as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess my, uh, I'm a gun rights guy, as I've talked about in this show many times. I mean, I've had a concealed carry permit for many years now, and it's just a wonderful opinion. But I guess my biggest takeaway from this case, and you mentioned this, Ben, as well, is the vindication of just of Justice Clarence Thomas. Um, the, the court decided two extremely high-profile Second Amendment cases in fairly quick succession, the, the D.C. versus Heller case of 2008, and then McDonald versus Chicago of 2010, and then for 12 years, they consistently denied cert. They consistently denied petitions to try to, to try to codify like a a, a real clar clarified meaning of the scope of the riot. They were content to let the lower courts kind of sort it out, and, and especially like this this Ninth Circuit two step test in a way that disproportionately harmed obviously law abiding gun owners. And Justice Thomas in particular repeatedly dissented from those denials of those writs of cert, where he consistently where he consistently kind of chided his colleagues uh, for treating the Second Amendment as a quote unquote second class right. So he gets the last laugh now. Um, you know, they granted cert, they've done the right thing here in, in, in clarion fashion. So good for him. Like I said, at the uh, you know, in my segment last time, in any other Supreme Court term, this is a marquee case. In any other Supreme Court term where there's not the overturning of Roe versus Wade, this is a big freaking deal. Because again, for the, this is the, the I, I just want to emphasize, this. this is the first time in the history of the U.S. Supreme Court that they have said that bear arms, not just keep arms, actually does mean exactly what it says. It's, it's, it's crazy, obviously, because, you know, we're 230 plus years into this constitutional republic, but this is the first time that they have clarified that, that, that exact language. We'll We'll see where it goes from here. Obviously, um, I, I just I'll just quickly add to the commentary on the Justice Alito concurring opinion in the Bruin case. I thought I, it was really delectable from my perspective to see Justice Alito just completely poke fun at this unhinged dissent from from Justice Breyer and the liberal justices who you know they saw fit to invoke Uvalde, Buffalo, all these mass shootings, and Justice Alito basically says, "Are you trying to tell me?" That New York State, if they, if they were, you know, if more people could concealed carry in that supermarket, that this guy would have been deterred, you know, and that he wouldn't have been stopped sooner. So it was really just delicious, and you know, I just love Sam Alito so much as well as Clarence Thomas. It's probably ripe for another discussion, but it, it's amazing what amateur hour it is on the left side of this bench, and it, it, like these these um, opinions that they have the their dissents have been uh, in contrast to the opinions have been shockingly bad. Um, Roe itself has always been, you know, a bad opinion. And and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I think somebody who wasn't, uh, say what you want about her, was not sort of stuck in amateur hour. Um, she even understood that. And that's been, I think, a theme of this court. I mean, Sotomayor's logic, it's just sometimes it, listening to her in the Dobbs case, for instance, in the uh, back and forth with attorneys, is, it, it's painful, truly painful. I can't imagine for uh, you know, the lawyers who have to listen to that, what, it's, what it sounds like. Uh, but I, I think that's probably an undercovered story because there have been so many, I think, conservative victories and so many solid opinions that we we haven't had time yet to dig into just how sophomoric uh, the, the logic has been from the left side of this court. But the gun opinion or the gun dissent was certainly a good one. I think the Dobbs dissent was a good one. Um, but in this dissent in particular, it is great to see Alito just thrash the uh, sophomoric logic that the... 
and that's a great contrast between the conservative legal project and the left's legal project, um, which it's just like they take, I think they take a lot of things for granted um, because they've been able to bulldoze every other institution and set the cultural norms um, that they never, they, they fundraised off of Roe going away. They fundraised off all of these fear mongering about precedent and everything, but they never really expected it to. Truly, they never really expected it to. Dobbs caught them completely off guard. Um, so with that, I'll kick it over to Ben. Uh, no, me. <laughs> to Will, sorry, it's Ben's topic. Um, I did, when I was actually writing on to, trying to write on to the law review, failing in this instance for, for reasons I'll, I, I can get into later, but uh, the topic of the write-on was the Second Amendment cases in 2015 and I got a real a real familiarity with what the courts of appeals were doing in the aftermath of Heller, which is basically ignoring it, right? They would acknowledge that Heller created this right to bear arms um, in your home, but then the test they would apply to every single new gun regulation or different gun regulation was this sort of like utilitarian means end two-step test that basically allowed them to uphold every gun regulation that they looked at. Um, including ones that seemed extreme. And I think the real dramatic effect of this ruling is to is not just that Thomas upheld the CCW or struck down the New York CCW law, but that he struck down this two-step approach everywhere. And so I think going forward, you know, it, it's funny, I remember, I remember reading Brett Kavanaugh's dissent when he was on the DC circuit in the Heller 2 case, which basically made this point, like, you guys are completely doing this wrong. This is, you have to solely focus on history. And he was drowned out by all the liberals who were like, no, but these gun regulations are so positive and wonderful. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's, this is not the analysis you would use in the First Amendment. It's not the analysis you would use in the Fifth Amendment. None of this means end stuff. Um, it's, it's all about, uh, does this comport with our history? So with that, I get to pivot over to uh, the free exercise of religion. So we had two um, big cases here. We had uh, the Carson v. Macon case, which was decided, uh, the opinion came out on that last week. That was the case that dealt with um, essentially two, you know, like a, the state of Maine had set up this tuition program whereby uh, if you lived in an area without a secondary school, like a high school, they would give you X amount of money per year to spend at a school of your choice, so long as that school was non-sectarian, um, i.e. non-religious. Um, and then we the, the court that had that legislation had passed muster in both the district court in Maine and the First Circuit Court of Appeals. And finally, um, you have the Supreme Court being like, no, that, that, that seems like a very clear dis, you know, discrimination and very clear violation of the free exercise of religion. Um, and then the second, which is another free exercise case, is this Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, whereby a, a high school football coach um, would, you know, after the game was over, had decided that he wanted to offer up a prayer at midfield as on a regular basis. Sometimes people would join him, sometimes they wouldn't. Um, and this had been going on for years. But at one point, uh, a the school administrator found out about it after he was, you know, somebody, another coach had sent a letter applauding him for this practice. Uh, the school administrator found out about it and tried to shut it down as a violation of the establishment clause. And here again, the court says, no, 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 this is a free exercise violation. They have to let him engage in these private um these essentially the, these private exercises of religion. So I, I, reading both and reading both the dissents, you know, I'm, I'm not actually, I wouldn't call myself like a free exercise expert. And I think I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to learning what Josh um, has to say about all this, but uh, in terms of like his understanding, but it seems pretty clear that again, we actually have this sort of shift uh, as a result of these two cases in terms of where we can expect the law to go, you know, moving forward. Whereas 
Before, it seemed like if there was any sort of tension between the establishment clause and the free exercise clause, right, where, you know, a government school is worried that they're allowing people to speak or, or a government institution is worried about their supporting religion in some way. Um, but, you know, and that leads them to discriminate against religion. In prior cases, the, the courts might have said, okay, that's fine. You know, you have to not establish, you know, not participate in establishment religion, separation of church and state, that's good. And now we have a more modern court that's like, actually, no, you, you can't discriminate against religious exercise. And merely saying that you're not allowed to discriminate against religion isn't a violation of the establishment clause. We're not creating a, you know, we're not creating a theocracy by saying, no, you can't just cut off all the funding. You, can, you can't offer funding to everybody and then exclude religious schools. And no, you can't just tell some high school football coach that he can't pray. Um, and I think that that's, that's really positive because, you know, what strikes me is how paranoid these public schools were about having any appearance of an establishment of religion. And yet we have all these debates going on about, and they're just completely letting wokeness in, you know, through the front door and in a world where I think it's, it's very, it's going to be very important going forward that in a world where there's no real constitutional control of wokeness education, if you will, that there has to be some counterbalancing of allowing a lot more, um, essentially, religion and religious exposure in the public sphere and in public schools, and ultimately also allowing for, you know, private school, you know, from to ensure that religious schools themselves are not being excluded from funding. Anyway, that's, those are the two big things, but I want to, I want to steer it to Josh, because I want to hear what he has to say about this as a former religious liberty litigator. Right, so, I, these are two, first of all, these are two great incremental incremental victories, but very strong incremental victories. Um, and and con the, the combined effect of them, I think, is quite is quite palpable. So the under like the original sin, so to speak, in religious liberty jurisprudence in many respects in America is the notion of separation of church and state itself, which, as anyone who's ever read the First Amendment could tell you, is not in there. It's totally fabricated. Thomas Jefferson used a the rhetoric of a quote unquote wall of separation in a 231 word letter that he wrote in 1802, years after the Constitution was drafted. He wasn't even at the Constitutional Convention, Thomas Jefferson, first of all. Um, and it wasn't until 145 years after that in a 1947 case called Everson, where the where the court first put into the Supreme Court canon this notion of separation of church and state. There was an absolutely remarkable writing by former Justice Bill Rehnquist in a 1982 case called Wallace versus Jaffrey, where he just systemically just shows that this notion of separation of church and state was never in there. But nonetheless, in the aftermath of Everson, there was a ton of just horrible precedent in this in this realm. I, I alluded to it earlier, this 1971 case called Lemon versus Kurtzman, where the court fabricated this, this test to try to see whether whether like a public crucifix or just anything in the public realm had had the purpose of endorsing religion. But you know, as Justice Scalia wrote in a concurrence in a, a case called Lamb's Chapel in 1993, advancing religion was was totally kosher at the time of the American founding. All you could not do was penal someone for not for not adhering to a certain conception of the deity but advancing religion in general as a public matter was entire I mean that was that was a core purpose of government in fact at the time of the American founding so a lot of this modern present in this space has had the effect as well alluded to of actually discriminating against religious people they have not been available they've not had the benefit of having access to generally available public benefits and there's one thing that the Roberts court has done in recent years there was the Trinity Lutheran case of 2017. 
Um, there was the Espinoza case out of Montana in 2020. To an extent, there was the Fulton case in, in Philadelphia last term on this one. Look, this court has consistently said that when it comes to generally available public benefits, you cannot discriminate in favor of secular and against religious people. So that, that that's obviously a good rule. The fact that this Lemon case from 1971 has been overturned is, is, an, is an outstanding development. But yeah, to Will's point, I mean, I think a lot of progressives like uh, the, the ADL has been a terrible advocate in this space. Just a lot of just progressive groups in general have taken such a strong view of this ahistorical separationist conception of the Establishment Clause that they have then discriminated against religious and violation of free exercise clause. So this court is finally starting to just truly undo decades and decades of terrible, terrible precedent in this space. Um, I just want to quickly say um, my former colleagues at First Liberty Institute were counsel uh, on both of these cases, actually. So, um, you know, huge congratulations to my friends and former colleagues at First Liberty for, uh, for these two great victories as well. Anybody else want to talk? <laughs> so I, I'll, I, I, can, I can jump in briefly um, just to underscore a kind of a couple of threads that have been raised, at least tangentially here, one being that I think one paradigm by which to look at the way that the ruling class has imposed its rule is through imposing a state anti-religion of progressivism in every single one of our institutions. And so I think these rulings in some ways can be viewed as a backlash uh, against the fact that the state anti-religion has encroached upon every single institution. And that is that is all to the good. And, and that's not a values neutral, we're just going to discriminate against all religions equally except our own, they're saying that their religion is the one true religion. And it's the only one that can be followed. And if you don't that literally bow down and submit to it, uh, then you ought to be excommunicated from public life. And I think that is the way to understand the progressive ideology. But number two, and, and I think I raised this last week as well, but, but it's worth noting again, in almost every single public event that took place from the time of our founding onward, I assume I would gather probably for decades thereafter, every single event essentially started with a prayer, including legislative sessions, which of course still do to a large extent, precisely because the founders, again, even the deists, even the ones who might've been atheistic themselves, nevertheless understood the value of inculcating Judeo-Christian religion in the populace did not mean a theocracy, but it certainly did not mean discriminating against religion in the public square. And so kudos to the Supreme Court here for restoring, restoring some semblance of that balance. Uh, it's, it'd be interesting to think about what the country would be like had we not had progressivism imposed as our state religion and religion completely removed from the public square up until, to some extent, these cases, but it is worth noting again, as Justice Thomas alluded to, what the history is here. And the history is no state religion that ought to be imposed upon you by the federal government anyway. But by the way, there were state religions, official religions within states well into the 1800s as well. There's a history that the left won't talk about again, because they want their religion or anti-religion to be the only one that exists in this country. I was just going to say, that's the important point. Their ideology or their religion is anti-religion. It is fundamentally anti-Judeo-Christian. It is anti-traditionalism. And that means that it's anti just about 50% or more of this country, probably more in cases where you're looking like uh, athletics, trans-athletics, transgender ideology, and, and everything like that. And it's one of those things where we used to get test cases that are, are sort of testing our system's interpretation of the Constitution. And this is why uh, people 
like Will and Josh, I think, love constitutional law because uh, you're sort of diving into the theory of of what these words, the framers used, the, what this language means, what is the good, um, and what is the proper interpretation of all of it. And these conversations are fascinating, but these test cases used to be sort of one-offs, right? Like some dummy would put up uh, some monument next to the Ten Commandments um, to Satan, right? Like we would have those test, test cases like this. Um, or, you know, for, you know, just random things. You can think of a, a handful of cases over the years. This is interesting because it is a test case, but it's one that could conceivably happen at every school in America right now every single one of them. And that would represent a worldview that is far more common um, than some of these cases used to uh, be, I guess, gauging or um, putting through the, the sort of stress test, um, the constitutional stress test. And so while this decision was uh, rendered properly, um, it's, it, it's going to, I guess, you know, politics culture is also downstream of politics uh, as as we like to say here and that's an important point and i think this is an important case in that direction uh, but yes our our institutions uh the question is whether they were ever able to maintain that hallowed sense of neutrality that even the aclu used to fight for um or if this was sort of uh, an inevitable consequence um the, these sorts of norms being changed was an inevitable consequence but on a sunny happy optimistic note um it was decided the right way and and the system worked properly um and and speaking of which i think we can transition to our fourth topic which is life after roe v wade life after dobbs i was writing a story actually on friday um about I think it was it was about basically that women can can see the post Dobbs uh, world as a as a liberating one, and just writing post Dobbs um, felt really good. Um, it, it felt like something had significant had really shifted. Now we all have ideas about what's exactly going to be on the political and cultural table when it comes to abortion going forward. Um, we have suggestions. I'm sure for uh, Republicans who are going to be so, that are going to be debating different policies and proposing certain policies, um, I do think a lot of different things that you know this this is going to test the incrementalism once again. It's going to test um, you know whether people want to start talking about abortifacients like Plan B, um, and these conversations are going to be huge and they're going to be difficult and they're going to be a, a big test for the conservative movement, but. We often, I think, forget uh, how dramatically Roe affected literally everything, the sexual ethics of this country. Um, that's why I was glad when our, our friends Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis wrote a book about how abortion is tearing us apart, how it affects everything, basically is the subtitle of their book. Um, Janet Yellen wrote a paper you know, in the late 90s with her husband for the Brookings Institute that talked about how abortion had actually increased single parenthood because uh, as it had been legalized, in the years leading up to the Roe decision itself, different states had legalized abortion, obviously, um, you could see that people were more comfortable having sex without consequences, with, or sex outside of commitment, I should say. And uh, you know, the, the piece that I wrote on Friday for The Federalist was saying, 
women should now feel liberated that they can have sex like women. They can, um, you know, be liberated from the Dave Portnoy, Portnoy idea about uh, hookup culture that Gen Z has been complaining about to places even like BuzzFeed News over the last few years. Um, and, and so this decision is, is obviously first and foremost important because it's, it's saving lives um, and restoring the moral integrity of our country. Um, it, it also, though, will have, I think, sweeping cultural effects um, that are downstream of the the cultural effects that row in and of itself that it was such a it was such a sickness um, and while abortion will be legal in about half the country um, and will be legal probably up until you know 15 weeks if not longer um, in in other parts of the country this is in the same way that we talked about in the last segment the way that uh, culture is downstream of politics this is a norm this is uh, an opportunity, I think a major opportunity for um, conservatives, for the pro-life movement to start making the argument um, that what abortion did was normalize a very unhealthy and very abnormal sexual order. And it's one that hurt women. It's one that was mainstreamed rapidly. Um, the industrialized abortion technology we have had over the last half century is just that. It is. It was brought about by technology. It's another thing we don't often think of, sort of as it went from the back alleys to doctor's offices. It was in, uh, certainly safer, um, but it was industrialized um, in, in absolutely ghastly ways. Um, and it was the, 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 the uh, abortion by male pills that are now be going to become normalized already have been normalized um, is a, a very, very frightening future because it, it takes away the sort of gravity um, of what you're doing. It makes it so, so it, seemingly so much easier until women end up looking in their toilets um, and the media re refuses to tell those stories about what happens um, when they take these pills. And uh, so often they are basically tortured um, and their children are killed and they have to deal with that um, and the media won't talk about it. So uh, on that dour note, uh, appropriately dour note, I would say I'll, I'll kick it open to the group. Um, what can we expect sort of in the, the uh, if we broaden the aperture a, a bit, what can we expect to change in American politics and culture with, with Roe now relegated to the ash heap of history? So, um, so uh, okay, go ahead, go ahead. Okay. Um, well, I think a few things. First, I mean, first off, on a purely political perspective, like I saw a number of people try and say, oh, this will be very bad for the Republicans in the polls. And I really don't think so. I think there's a couple reasons for that. I think, I think first, um, you know, I look at, you know, comparatively, like what was like a galvanizing event in 2018 was the Kavanaugh confirmation, right? A lot of, a lot of Republicans were radicalized by that and went to the polls. But I think part of what helped was not only did the Democrats like do something really appalling in the way they treated him, but we ultimately prevailed, right? Kavanaugh was ultimately confirmed. And there's something like galvanizing about, hey, we, we as a movement triumphed over adversity. Uh, there's no triumph for the Democrats here. They just took a massive L. Um, in terms of what they wanted. And, and as a political movement, I cannot think of a corresponding failure on the part of Republicans, even as ineffectual as they've been, um, that would be, you know, as magnified as this, right? Like on a primary central issue, uh, you know, that you, you had this massive, enormous, uh, not just a legislative loss, but a court loss. That means you don't, you, you basically lost, uh, 
not, you know, not in every state, obviously, but you lost the right to an abortion in half the country, um, which is, you know, and I can imagine what I've seen is a lot of Democrats pointing out like, hey, didn't we elect you to stop this? <laughs> you know, didn't we, isn't that why we donate all our time and energy? Like, we wanted you to not let this happen and you let it happen and you're going to raise money based on it. Um, so I, I think that it's going to be, it's very demoralizing for the left. Um, and I think that that's ultimately in the short term going to mean that we, the Republicans actually have a tailwind as a result of this. Um, and the second thing is, I think, you know, uh, Emily's right. Uh, hookup culture is going to take a beating, not, not completely, but a lot of people, especially if they live in States where they're, you know, they're not guaranteed the right to an abortion. I think it's going to dramatically shift, um, behavior towards a positive thing, which is, uh, people being more careful with their sexual behavior. Uh, and that's, that's good. Hookup culture is no good. Um, and I think that that, that's a, that's a very positive thing. The only, I, I worry a little bit that my, my fear, and it's, it's purely like a pragmatic political one. I think Republicans will go in some States will go a little too hard and get caught up banning like the hardest of hard cases. Like, and I, I really don't want a world where we're like forced to sit around in, in elections and debate rape and incest exceptions. Like, I don't think that like, that's like the weakest ground Republicans have in this issue. And so I'm just like hoping, you know, basically I'm like, just hoping nothing crazy happens. Right. And, and in the next like six months and, and hoping that we like can consolidate our political victories here um, and not like get caught up in like the worst possible, like the weakest possible ground in this debate. That's my hope. So two, two lines of comments. I'll try to be quick in our limited remain time in this segment. The first is Henry Olson of EPPC and Washington Post in his recent column. It was a good column, but one thing that I want to highlight from it, he was basically making a, a plea to his fellow pro-lifers to recall that if you take opinion polling seriously on this issue, which is a dubious proposition, but like let's concede the premise of, of, of opinion polling, pro-lifers are in the minority, at least as far as the first trimester of pregnancy is concerned. Um, you know, we're, we're very much in the majority as far as everything after that. It's just a friendly reminder that for those of us who are avowedly pro-life and we believe that legal protection should begin at the moment of fertilization, that we need to be aware that we are that we are in the minority and, and, we, and we should take that mentality, I think, to the public square when we're trying to change hearts and minds. But the other point that I want to make, which is what Will alluded to here, which is kind of the, the possible effect of kind of the downplaying of hookup culture, you know, this is the idea that, you know, to Emily's point, it's true that uh, you know, uh, uh, politics can be downstream of culture, but culture can also be downstream of politics and the law. And that is exactly what what Will's alluding to is that in certain red states where abortion might be heavily restricted, people's actual culture and behavior might actually change. And on that note, one strand of argument that I've actually already picked up and I'm going to continue to kind of make, and I've been making this argument for a few years now, is that this does not represent the end goal. I just want to be clear from a pro-life perspective, the Dobbs case is a remarkable achievement and it is a necessary precondition to the actual end goal, but it is not the end goal. The end goal, um, as, as, as conservatives you know, who are really pro-life, I think have understood for decades, has been an actually abortion-free America, uh, abortion abolitionism. There's, there, are, there are 14th Amendment equal protection clause arguments on these grounds. I'm actually working on an op-ed on this topic right now. So that is going to be the next legal constitutional pro-life fight, is constitutional personhood. Justice Kavanaugh and his Dobbs concurrence totally swapped that down. It was gratuitous. It was virtue signaling. It was completely unnecessary, in my opinion. But that is the next mid to long-term goal in the legal constitutional realm. Um, so just a quick point on the political element of this. Um, I think it's going to be staggering for large swaths of the American population to see what the progressive position has become from safe, legal, and rare 
to infanticide on demand, and, and that really is indisputable infanticide, is where certainly a minority of a minority are, but they probably have the loudest voices on this issue from the left. And I think that is going to redound to the left's detriment substantially to the extent they try to make this the national issue you know, in the midterm elections and then beyond the midterm elections. Frankly, I think the pro-life forces and the pro-choice to pro-abortion spectrum uh, fervor on either side will probably cancel each other out, I suspect, ultimately, although this is going to be a state-by-state -state issue. Uh, and thank God this is a state-by-state -state issue. You know, it's worth underscoring the point again. In some ways, this, th this decision was the easy decision because it just says, give it back to the states. And now the so-called messiness of federalism actually transpires. But this is exactly how these decisions ought to be hashed out. And it's one of the few times, I mean, yes, we've seen with this court, but in recent memory where the court has said, no, it's on you, your legislators and the people to render these decisions not us. Um, thank God that that is the case. And the last thing I'll make, and you know, maybe we can talk about it in the parting shots or not, is just it was very interesting to see in uh, you know the majority opinions, there's a focus on the tens of millions, 60 plus million lives taken as in the post-Row era. And then on the other hand, to look at the left lamenting the fact that women today are going to bear all these hardships as a consequence of this. But that contrast in who the focus ought to be uh, and who the vic real victims are here, I think is very telling about how the right and how the left view the world. And there are probably many takeaways that we might have from it, but it's just something that immediately struck me who the focus was on in terms of who the victims are and where sympathy ought to be focused here uh, is something that is, is quite interesting in terms of the contrast between right and left on this issue and, and likely so many other related issues as well. All right. Well, that's everybody's segments. Um, let's do final thoughts. Uh, I guess I'll start with uh, Josh. <laughs> okay. So I, 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 I guess I, the only thing that I want to underscore here, um, I, I guess two things. One is, you know, as someone, I, I've been a card carry member of the Federal Society since my first year of law school. I do a lot of FedSoc campus talks, but I have, I, I've had an at times an uneasy relationship because I tend to criticize it, uh, albeit from within the fold, but I tend, I have tended to be very critical. I think on this week of all weeks, it is very important to give the Federal Society immense credit um, for what they have done here. They they have achieved in uh, this week uh, probably more than they have achieved uh, in multiple terms combined, right? I mean, this has been by far the most conse consequential week in the history of the modern conservative legal project. And, um, you know, we can discuss what comes next. I just kind of alluded to that with the Equal Protection Clause, constitutional personhood stuff, and my whole common good originalism project is not going to go anywhere. But seriously, like hats off um, to the Federal Society and all of those who have been involved with judicial nominations and getting us to this point. I guess you know, the, the, the final thing I'll just say here, um, and this is not exactly a novel point, but it's, it's just worth emphasizing, History, and I don't want to, you know, I'm starting to sound like preacher like on my soapbox here. History will, I think, one day view Roe versus Wade right alongside Dred Scott, Plessy, Korematsu as some of just the most egregious Supreme Court decisions in the United States history. Um, I, I think the moral revulsion and disgust that anyone who goes to law school today and reads the Dred Scott opinion from Chief Justice Roger Taney in 1857. 
I really do think that is the way that law students, you know, a generation or two from now, perhaps it might take time, will one day view Roe versus Wade when they go ahead and read Harry Blackman's handiwork in that case. But it's just it just bears repeating that Harry Blackman, as monstrous as the Roe versus Wade decision was, the justice who wrote it, even he conceded, he literally said forthrightly in Roe versus Wade, anyone can just look it up right now. He says that if the unborn person is a person under the understanding of the 14th Amendment, then his decision doesn't make any sense. And he actually, to his very mild credit, he had the humility to concede that his decision might be revisited one day based on the evolving state of embryology of science. So uh, the same cannot be said, obviously, of the ACLU, of kind of uh, third wave feminists in particular, who have just tried to kind of do the whole like a clump of cells disinformation campaign. But, you know, look, uh, what, what an amazing result. The fight goes on for constitutional personhood. But this week is really just a joyous week. And, you know, I think I speak for all of us when I say that I'm just so profoundly happy. I I want to just touch on that point about how history will view Roe because um, I feel like this is a, a an inflection point um, and I, I think we're in this tug of war between humanism and transhumanism or it's probably better put as anti-humanism and uh, I like to say whenever I talk about this I, I don't mean to sound like I just smoked a bowl um, and decided to chat about the metaverse but I do mean that a lot of these very Technologies that, you know, if, if you're like me, you're, you're not even 30 yet, seem like they've always been around. They are our norm. Roe was always our norm. Um, a lot of this stuff happened uh, really quickly with new technologies that developed in the 20th century, and they are pushing us away from how we are meant to live. They have improved life immeasurably. They have lifted an immeasurable amount of people out of poverty, um, but they have changed the way that we live in very unhealthy ways. And Roe was a part of that. It was a part of changing our norms and making it easier for us to try and transcend um, what it is to be a human, what it is to be a woman, to, to uh, escape um, our bodies instead of embracing them and, and learning to love and live with the limitations that God made us with as human beings. Um, and so I think of this in that very sort of broad sense of being one moment in the tug of war. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot pushing us in the other direction um, on things that are not just to do with abortion. Um, I, I've seen some truly horrific rhetoric that's casual around things like IVF recently. Um, and, and that may seem crazy, but I'm, I'm very like very convinced that a lot of this, um, we, we have just sort of been snowballing, the snowball careening down the hill or the boiling frog um, who suddenly realizing um, that the heat has been turned up way too hot. Um, and and we're burning. So I have uh, both optimism and pessimism. Optimism um, in that I, I think there's a human spirit fighting back when we see the numbers of how many uh, younger Americans are pro-life as opposed to the boomer generation or the extra generation. Um, I think you see the fight in that um, and in the the you know Matt Walsh, what is a woman uh, reception and pop cultural impact. That's just one example, but the way that uh, the conversation has gone with Title IX. All of these things, I think you can see the the fight left. Um, you know, we're we are created to survive, um, and I think that's playing out. Uh, but we're also doing a lot of things that numb us um, from the the pain, so uh, of of existence. Um, and so, who who knows where this will go? <laughs> 
While I continue to hold that it's basically Justice Thomas is the only sure vote, Justice Alito there is there most of the time, and then all bets are off on a, a whole slew of issues with the other judges. I think one of the reasons that we are all, to one extent or another, so profoundly happy about these decisions is the fact that it feels like justice was actually done for once in an era, in an age where every single institution has eviscerated itself and been weaponized against us. This is one bastion that in these not so limited circumstances actually held up, held up in the face of literal death threats and mobs outside these individuals' houses. So for that, because I'm sure they will backstab us in a whole slew of cases going forward, at minimum today, we should be appreciative and, and thankful for what was done here. Now, on the more cynical side of things, uh, one question that we still don't have an answer to is who leaked the Alito opinion, number mm -hmm. one. And obviously, Will has a theory on that, which he's laid out at great length. But And what is Chief Justice Roberts planning to do about to that leaker? Uh, how is he planning to publicize it? What report will be out there? Um, this, this story should not be able to die. The media may well try to kill it ultimately, but it should not die. Uh, that's number one. And then number two, because there's this one institution that held in these circumstances, of course, it's under substantial threat. And you know, I, I would argue, and I argued before, that the effort to go at Justice Thomas through Ginny Thomas is part of the assault on the Supreme Court, which is aimed at, of course, ultimately packing the court, delegitimizing the court while all the rhetoric, as some of our listeners and viewers probably saw in that Tucker Carlson monologue last night, is all about how the court delegitimized itself. It was illegitimate. Well, no, actually, it's all of these forces that want to delegitimize the court and make it and render it illegitimate through packing and a whole slew of other schemes to take away its actual power because it didn't bend to the progressives' whims on these particular issues. And I go back to the fact that the Justice Department uh, really remarkably and disastrously, in my view, putting out these statements about these decisions. Now, maybe you say that this is Merrick Garland's revenge, uh, but the fact of the matter is, if the DOJ is coming out and taking that position, that in and of itself leads to a potential constitutional crisis. You know, we saw the executive branch, the administrative state, weaponize against the actual executive under the last administration. Here you have the DOJ, essentially an, an, an edifice of the executive branch, a part of the executive branch, going after the Supreme Court here. Uh, and, and I think you're going to see a total onslaught against it because no institution can be freed of the progressive anti-religion. And that's my main takeaway here. But thank God for what this court has done during this term. Yeah, I think, you know, I guess my final thought is 10 years ago, I, I would have said I was completely pro-choice. And, you know, I'm still non-religious. And so, you know, I guess my position might be characterized as very modestly pro-choice in the sense that I probably think that first trimester abortions should be permitted. Um, that said, like, it's so dramatically different than, I mean, my, my position has moved dramatically to the right in the past decade, and particularly in the last five years, watching the left advocate for things like abortion at full term, that it's just clearly barbaric. And, and I think, you know, we, we look at today, I think that's yet another reason that I don't think the left is going to get much out of this. I think they, they had gotten themselves into a position where they, they weren't advocating safe, legal and rare anymore. They were advocating um, barbaric. And I think, you know, the, the corresponding, the corollary is the problem with safe, legal and rare is that it doesn't emphasize rare enough, right? We want it to be rare first and foremost. And after that, we'll talk about safe and legal, right? And that maybe that's the, the rights line or something similar to it, that it should, that this should not be common at all, that this should be extraordinarily rare. Um, and, and it's just bad for broader society. Um, 
and that said, I mean, and so today I was thrilled when Roe was overturned. <laughs> I think it was terrible law. And I think it was allowing, you know, barbaric abortion practices that we wouldn't see anywhere else in the world, really, except in a few countries. Um, so that, that's, I think that's a very positive thing. And, and just, you know, a, a, along with a very positive week in general, the court that we all talked about, all these great Second Amendment cases. So with that, um, I think uh, on behalf of Josh, Emily, and Ben, thanks for tuning in. I'm Will Chamberlain. See you at the next NatCon squad.